Hey there, welcome to The Story Church. I'm Eric Huffman, I'm the lead pastor of The Story and um, just wanna say hi. Thank you for being here today. If it's your first time, you might think, you know, there's nothing unusual about what you're seeing right now, but if you are a regular in our online campus, you know this isn't how things usually look. Many of you know The Story Church is in a season of transition. There's a lot of change happening right now. All week long, we've been moving everything from our current main campus over in the Museum District of Houston, Texas, over to our new, more permanent home at uh, 3223 Westheimer Road in the River Oaks community of, of Houston. And so it's been quite an amazing week. But basically today, Sunday, um, November 5th, we don't we don't have anything uh, to speak of technology-wise in the main campus. So with that in mind, we decided to pre-record today's message so that everybody can still be on the same page as a community and we don't leave you, our online campus, behind today as we're moving. So we love you so much. And for that reason, we wanted to make sure to keep you looped in even as we move from one place to the other. Um, so. November the 12th, next Sunday, is going to be a very special one uh, for the Story Church. If you are in or around the Houston area and you're able to get there in person, we would love to see you at our new home at 3223 Westheimer Road, 839-45 or 11 o'clock um, for the first ever Sunday uh, services over there at our new home. So I, uh, I can't wait to see all of you. And of course, we'll still be um, online as well for those of you who are from uh, out of town. Now, today's message is part eight of a 26-part message series called Acts of the Apostles, and we are just slowly working our way through this awesome ancient book, which is the fifth book in the New Testament, that chronicles how this movement called Christianity, or called the church, actually began, and what challenges it overcame, and how we as Christians today, or maybe folks that are considering Christianity, how we might be shaped um, by this uh, historical document, this reality of the church's um, inception. So today's message is based on chapter 4 of Acts, uh, starting in verse 23 to 31, and it's going to deal with issues like persecution, of Christians. Acts 4 is really the first example of Christian persecution or persecution against believers and followers of Jesus. And so um, we're going to be dealing with that theme. And I know that can seem like a foreign concept to many of us in this culture, but today I want us to really press a little deeper and ask ourselves how foreign a concept is it really? And uh, what might we be able to learn from a story like this one? So let's start just in verse 23. This is going to kind of be a verse by verse analysis for, for a minute, at least, because in verse 23, it says on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So what's happened here, if you've been following along with us, you know, Peter and John have basically been detained sort of under arrest. They're being questioned for crimes that they didn't really commit, but they're being accused of and, and uh, some things that they did that the officials didn't like, to say the least. And so um, they were detained for a time. And when they got out, they went straight to, it says, their own people. And right here, you guys, right here, we get a clue about how Christians are meant to handle pressure and, uh, and this sort of persecution when we face it in the world. Whenever we come up against something like this, Christians are to respond the way uh, Peter and John did. But that's not usually what happens in my estimation, at least not in my own life. Whenever I face anti-Christian sentiment out in the world, 
I'm not likely to do what they did. I'm likely to do what reptiles do, which is fight or flee, right? It's the fight or flight reptilian brain reaction. And that's how a lot of us are, if we're honest. We either take the fight to the world and whoever has aggrieved us, they're going to feel aggrieved themselves when we're done with them. That sort of approach. We take it to the courts seeking justice, or we take it to the streets in protest, or we take it to social media to make our case for how we've been wronged and, and you know, try to make it go viral so that our accusers are shamed, whatever we do to take the fight to our aggressors and oppressors. That's one way of going about it. And, and we, some of us have gotten pretty good at that as Christians, unfortunately. And the other side of it is, is we might just flee or fly. You know, we, 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 we just want to get away. We, we're passive. We just sort of lay down and play doormat and let the world have its way with us. We don't want to put up a fight, but we don't want any trouble, you know? So we'll just sort of take it and turn a blind eye and sweep it under the rug, whatever analogy you want to use. We fight or we fly, right? That's not what, Je uh, what John and, and Peter did here. What did they do? They went straight to their people. Who was that? Who were their people? Was that a, like an ethnicity group? Was it a geographical sort of neighborhood? No, these are the Christians. That's who their people were now, were the, their fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's where they went first. They had no other sort of intimation or thought about going anywhere else. Why? Because they rightly had no expectation of fairness in a fallen world like this one. They had no expectation of secular justice and they had no need for man's validation or for man's approval, um, especially not fallen sinful men like the ones who were persecuting them. And, and so they just went back to their own people. They went to the church. Man, I, I wish Christians, I wish I, wish I had this instinct more often. I wish I followed this way more often, whenever I feel aggrieved or wronged or, or just down about the way the world is going, I wish I was, you know, I wish I was the first in line at the church. I wish I took my stuff first to my people, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. What a difference it would make if we did that. And it's not just the social aspect of it. It's, it's what happened when Peter and John took their, their grievances, their pain, their story back to the church. And, and, and we, we see it in the next verse, in verse 24. It, it says, um, when they heard this, so this is um, the Christians. When the Christians heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. They raised their voices together in prayer to God. That was the point and purpose of Peter and John bringing their stuff back to the church immediately, bringing the whole story back with them to the church first and foremost, to pray, to pray in one voice with their brothers and sisters in Christ, because prayer is where the power is. Prayer for Christians is where the power is. All right. So um, I am increasingly convinced that most people, especially secular people, and sadly, even some um, ostensibly Christian people that I know and follow online um, have fallen out of um, love with prayer. They have come to believe that there's no power in prayer, right? So they've come to sort of um, see prayer as a nice thing traditionalist or religious people do. 
but it's not efficacious, it's not real. I was really amazed and, and disappointed this week when I saw a tweet from the most powerful official in Harris County, the county where I live, and she is uh, the county judge, which if you don't live in Texas, you don't know what that really means, but she's the most powerful official in, in this part of the country. And she, in response to a tragedy that happened in another part of the country, she tweeted, um, the time for thoughts and prayers has passed. Now we just need to act. And it's one thing to say, look, uh, thank you all for your thoughts and prayers, keep them coming, and it's time for us to do you know, legislation. But to say the time for thoughts and prayers has passed, it belies another sentiment altogether, and I'm afraid that is an increasingly uh, common sentiment in our world today. Nevertheless, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, taught us to pray. And ever since, faithful Christians have trusted in the power of prayer as nonsensical as the world might suggest it is, we pray. That's what we do. And these Christians in the first century, in the first church, they, they gathered in light of John and Peter's uh, return to pray. And it's not just that they prayed either. It's what they prayed that really stands out to me. Now, they, they didn't just come together like we often do and casually pray, Father God, thank you for today and the, the breakfast tacos or whatever. They, they, they prayed very specifically and intentionally in four uh, sort of steps. The first thing they did was acknowledge the power of God. In verse 24, they acknowledged God's power. They said, you are mighty, basically. They were like, you created everything, you are everything, you can do everything, and you are him, basically, as my kids would say. So they acknowledged his power. Verse 25, they acknowledged the divine inspiration of Scripture, didn't they? They said, uh, after they said, you made the heavens and the earth and everything in them, you spoke. Then they said that you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, your father David. So, uh, our father David. So basically what they're saying there is all of scripture, including what you spoke through David in the Psalms, was really spoken by your Holy Spirit through David. So they acknowledge the power and might of God, and then they acknowledge the divine inspiration of scripture. That's how they started their prayers. So this is, uh, this is very intentional, and, um, and this is something I think we can, we can learn from. Next, in verse 25, they literally quoted a psalm. Now, when I was a cynic about Christianity, I used to joke about Christians who quoted scripture in their prayers when talking to God. It's like, you guys think he wrote the book. Why would you quote his own book back to him, right? And that was a very cynical, hard-hearted way of looking at it. But to quote scripture in prayer can be such a powerful thing. And we don't do it often. Most of us don't memorize scripture enough <laughs> to quote scripture in prayer. But it is an acknowledgement of scripture's power. And it is a beautiful way of standing in a long line of other Christians who pray using the same words, the same sorts of words, like the Psalms in this case. And here's what they prayed. Our father David, who said, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So that's from um, Psalm 2. And, and they are interpreting that psalm to have been fulfilled in their midst through Jesus. They're saying this was written a thousand years ago, but it was written about today, about what, what has just happened in Jerusalem. Like, like the, the, the rulers, the Gentiles and Jewish rulers, these 
worldly forces turned on God's anointed one. They turned on Jesus. And then that's the next part of their prayer. They recognize the fulfillment of Scripture. So they acknowledge God's power. They acknowledge the divine inspiration of Scripture. And they're recognizing that fulfillment of Scripture in their prayer. They said, indeed, this is in verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. So we see them acknowledging not just the divine inspiration of scripture, but they acknowledge and, and see how that scripture is being fulfilled in their midst. They're like, you're legit. This is happening. We see you working, God. So that's how they really set the table in prayer before they ever get to an ask. And that's what I want us to see. We think prayer is all about just asking. And, and they left the ask for the end. And by the time they got to the ask, their hearts were in a different place maybe than when they even started the prayer because they prayed the right things to start with. Lord, you are awesome. You're everything. You're him. Lord, your word is true. Every word is inspired by your Holy Spirit. Lord, uh, we see scripture being lived out, fulfilled in our midst. And then they get to their petition. And what do they ask him for? What do they ask? Even in those trying times, what do we see them asking God for? Well, let's look at verse 29. Verse 29 says, Now, Lord, they, they said, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants, that's Christians, that's us, to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then it says, as they were praying, after they were praying, the place where they had gathered, it was shaking, it was shook. And we don't know if that's like God shaking it up or just the Holy Spirit moving in the place, or, or there were so many Christians in the house that it was literally shaking. Who knows what exactly is meant? Well, we know that God moved. All right. So what they asked for is more important than just that they prayed. And, uh, and what they prayed for wasn't what, what I would probably, it's a confession to him, probably not what I would pray for, having just been interrogated by the same officials who just killed my leader, Jesus, like days before, right? And here they are, instead of asking for the things I would ask for, which is like, hey, a little protection, Lord, that'd be nice. Maybe a guardian angel or two for a few days at least. That'd be great. Some, a security detail. Maybe I would pray for a way out. They didn't pray for any of that. All they prayed for was the power of God to be made known in a, like a miracle. And then they prayed. The only thing they prayed for for themselves was great boldness. Like, I'm, I'm tempted to say, if I'm God in that situation, I'm tempted to say, you guys are good. You already have great boldness. You're already standing up for what's right in a bold way. But they wanted more boldness. They didn't want safety. They didn't want security. They didn't want a way out. They wanted to be bold for Jesus. That's what they prayed for. Amazing. Amazing. This passage, this story really challenged me as I was studying it, and, and it sort of um, brought three big questions to the surface. I think these are questions that everybody who thinks about this story is going to be challenged with, especially skeptics and, and people that aren't sure about Christianity, and even some of us who are Christians. And the three questions are this. Basically, first, why are Christians not being persecuted anymore, right? Um, and and the, the second question that sort of flows from that 
is uh, this idea of prayer. Um, so why are Christians not persecuted like they were then? Secondly, what's the point of prayer for Christians? And then third, um, what's the difference between a Christian who is bold and one who is just a bully? <laughs> I think these are all valid questions and I'd like to tackle them one at a time real quick. So uh, first of all, why aren't Christians being persecuted anymore? Now this one is a question I hear a lot of Christians asking. It's like, well, I, I, I know Christians are supposed to stand firm in the face of persecution. I just don't feel that persecuted these days. And part of it, and the most obvious answer to that is, you know, well, we're not facing the same kind of, his, uh, of persecution that historically Christians have faced because we are so fortunate to be living in a time and place that, you know, is so blessed with um, freedoms, freedoms that people have fought wars for and crossed the high seas for and, and, and died for and spilled their blood for. And, and, and we live in the most prosperous and fortunate time and place to ever be alive. And so we should always be grateful for that. It's amazing how unhappy so many of us are to be living in such a wonderful time and place as this. And that being said, just to honestly deal with this question, I got to say two things. First of all, there are many, many Christians who are being persecuted in a real and serious way. But I know that question usually stems from people who are living in the West, right? In, in America, in particular, where nobody's coming for our heads today. You know, nobody's threatening our lives because of our religious convictions. But I also have to acknowledge the fact that um, there is, in America, a changing sort of uh, tide that's coming in. A tide of, like, anti-religious sentiment generally, and I mean, I dare say anti-Christian sentiment more specifically, and I don't say that in any way to, um, you know, make us into victims at all, but I just, I think it's incorrect to say that Christians today never face persecution or pressure from the world at all. I think it's, I think it's increasing, and I think young generations are going to see more of it than my generation and older generations have maybe it, it seems to be spreading like a cancer in our culture it has spread this sentiment has spread throughout institutions of higher learning especially colleges and universities uh, upper level um, graduate schools and things like that it's spread through the social sciences it's spread through the news media obviously um, and social media in another way I, I think it, it's there um, everyone's still allowed to be religious in our climate, but um, not too religious, right? We don't, we don't want to get carried away with it. Everybody's okay with you if you have religious traditions that you abide by or follow. Everybody will actually think it's sweet that you do that in, in, sort, of, um, in sort of a, a throwback kind of cute way. But if your religious traditions evolve into religious convictions, there's often a price to pay, whether that's socially or um, financially or uh, educationally or otherwise. Um, you often have to pay a price for having real Christian convictions. Um, nobody's going to send you to prison for being a Christian, probably, in our culture. Um, nobody's going to cut your head off for being a Christian in our culture. They will simply look for a way to silence you oftentimes or ostracize you. And I got a little taste of this a few years back, well, more than a few now, almost 10 years ago 
in the aftermath of my coming out party, when I came out as a, a Bible-believing Christian. And before that, I was sort of a casual uh, fringe Christian where I said I was Christian. I usually checked the Christian box, but I lived like an atheist. And I essentially believed like an atheist. Um, but when I came out as sort of uh, evangelical kind of Christian that really believes the whole Bible cover to cover, there was a price to pay, and I can't deny that. I don't need anybody to think I was persecuted or to think I'm a victim at all. I don't want that at all. But factually, it's true that I lost many friends over that move and that there are many people in my life, friends, some family and acquaintances and certainly um, colleagues, who would prefer I came out as a full-blown atheist with, uh, you know, a social justice agenda than, uh, you know, that I came out as Christian. Um, I immediately became persona non grata to a lot of people that I cared about. I faced all kinds of uh, public shame and scorn, none of which really scarred me or left me needing therapy or anything, but I was called names publicly. You know, I was called a bigot. I was uh, called a fascist. I was, I was told that if I were alive in the, the mid-19th century, I certainly would have been a slave owner um, because I was one of those people. I, I received a text message mourning, grieving uh, from, a, from a, a former friend who was grieving how I had changed sides and I had become just another basic Texas Bible thumper, they said. And that's all I was to them at that point. Friends and colleagues said I was unhinged and out of line, et cetera, et cetera. There was a rumor that I'm secretly gay uh, for a while there because of, you know, ostensibly because of what I believe about marriage and gender and sexuality and stuff. I must be closeted in that regard. They said that uh, all sorts of other things about me and all because I had the audacity to come out as an unashamed Christian to follow Jesus and to promote basic Christian convictions and you know, nothing, nothing crazy or out of step with, with historic biblical Christianity. Now, none of them wanted to kill me. I just want to say that again. Nobody wanted to hurt me physically. They just wanted me to be quiet. They just wanted me to be alone, sort of like a timeout until I got my head right and I was allowed to come out and be human again. You know, they just wanted me to be silenced and ostracized. And I think that's really how persecution works in our culture today. I think while they're not coming for our heads, they're coming for Christians' um, reputations and relationships, for our platforms, for our, um, for our opportunities, you know, for our good names, for, for our you know, souls maybe to a certain degree. Um, they're, they're coming in a, in a way that I, I must admit feels like persecution or at least like serious pressure. I remember being invited a few years ago to speak at a, a local high school um, where one of the students from this church was attending. And it was a private school, private Christian school, and she wanted her pastor to come and speak at the chapel service. And I agreed, and I set up the, the date that we agreed to with the school. And then a few days before I was supposed to speak, the school official called me and I think they were like the dean of the chapel or something. And she asked me what I was going to talk about. And so I talked her through my message. <laughs> it was a basic, like, uh, just simple explanation of the amazing grace of Jesus, like the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all it was. 
And it was like a 15-minute talk. I never give 15-minute talks. They were lucky to just get 15 minutes and not 45 like I subject you guys to every week. And in this case, it was just basic gospel. And by the end of it, I mean, her reaction, it seemed like she had heard me saying, like quoting like Hitler's manifesto verbatim or something. Like I had just quoted Mein Kampf to, to this woman on the phone. That's, that's how she reacted against it. And she said she would have to talk to her supervisors. And eventually I was uninvited from speaking at that Christian school, just basically about the gospel of Jesus. Again, it's not about um, hurting anybody. It's about silencing people. And students get that message loud and clear, by the way. That girl, that student who invited me to that school got that message loud and clear. She started an underground Bible study with some other Christian friends. They met over lunch and sort of like, you know, Christians undercover style. It was kind of cool. And um, they invited me to come and have lunch <laughs> with them and give the talk that I would have given at chapel, which was uh, just a terrific way to handle it. But I see students who leave the Story Church and go off to college. They'll come back at Christmas or they'll message me or call me and talk about how they're walking on eggshells at their campuses. They're feeling pressure to comply with campus norms and narratives. Those, uh, that dominant culture is um, alive and well. Um, they, they are told they have to believe certain things and abide by certain things and post certain things on media, social media, and be a part of certain movements and um, you know, wave certain flags and all this stuff just to be accepted. And, and it's always a moving target. It's just never enough. Like it's, it's not enough anymore to not be a racist, right, in, on college campuses, just to say you're not a racist and not be a racist is not enough. Now you have to be anti-racist, right, which involves, if you're white, you know, renouncing your whiteness and apologizing for your whiteness and all of that as a starting point, which is, honestly, that just sounds a little racist, right? It's like not how the conversation should be going, and yet Christian students are facing a lot of pressure to abide by these narratives. The same goes with what's happening with climate, for example. These are just a couple of examples. This is not the sermon's about, but it's no longer enough to be an environmentalist or to be, you know, environmentally conscious or a conservationist is not enough. You know, now you have to be part of the climate justice movement, which involves all sorts of other things that may or may not um, jive with a basic Christian worldview. You know, a lot of the policies of the climate justice movement are anti-human in the end. They they will create a world where every country is less prosperous and less populous and less free. And yet, if you don't abide by these rules and toe that line, you can, be, uh, you can face a lot of pressure to be um, silent. And I see that and hear that a lot from students, especially college students today. So we're not under persecution like the first Christians were in the Roman Empire or like some Christians are in some parts of the world today. But that pressure is there. Let's just be honest, that pressure and persecution are there and it's real. And I think really in today's world, the only people, the only Christians who face no pressure at all are either living in seclusion like monks maybe somewhere that don't interact with the world or they're living in cowardice. They're living as cowards, cowardly Christians. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, that's obviously based on passages like this one, that's not who we're called to be. So first question why do Christians not face persecution? I hope we've addressed that one. The second question is about prayer. And this is a question I hear some Christians asking, but a lot of non-Christians asking. What exactly is the purpose and the point of prayer? 
Why do Christians pray? We look at this story. Why did they pray? When John and Peter returned from their interrogation, from their detention, why did the Christians pray? Prayer is the language that Jesus has given us. Prayer is the Holy Spirit speaking in us, hearing us, interceding for us. Uh, and this is the prayer Jesus modeled for us. This is the language Jesus modeled for us. And it's something Christians have always participated in ever since the days Jesus walked the earth. And there's different utilities to it, right? Prayer obviously promotes intimacy with God. Prayer promotes unity among believers. You know, there's all sorts of outcomes. I've heard scientific studies say people that pray, you know, live longer or have greater peace of mind and all of that. But for today's purposes on this conversation about pressure from the outside world and persecution, I'd like us to think about prayer from a different angle. I think an underappreciated benefit of prayer is how when we are under pressure, prayer helps believers reframe the narrative and tell a better story and live that better story. All right, so whenever we face um, pressure and persecution, we're going to be tempted to buy into the narrative that um, the enemy or the world wants us to buy into. We are tempted in those instances to believe that we're victims, that we've been victimized, that we are powerless and oppressed. Do you see what Peter and John did, how they reacted to their actual victimization, to their actual oppression? Peter, John, and the early Christians never saw themselves as victims. They didn't need that sort of social credit, or they didn't need that sort of victim status. Why? Because their prayer life, I think, protected them from succumbing to that mentality. Their prayer life wouldn't allow them to remain victims. In prayer, your victimhood will always give way to victory. Always. And you begin to, to tell a better story. You find yourself um, going into your prayers when you're under pressure. You find yourself going into your prayers, ready to tell God how big your problems are. And by the time you're done praying, talking about God, worshiping him, quoting scripture and, and acknowledging scripture in your prayer and, and hearing other Christians around you pray. By the time you're done praying, you don't want to tell God how big your problems are. You're ready to tell your, your problems how big God is. That's the power of prayer. It's a total uh, paradigm shift for us. And, and, and in a world full of toxic and unhelpful and often untrue narratives, um, prayer helps us tell a better story. And I would just ask you, like, what's the story you're telling right now? What's the narrative you've fallen for? And maybe, maybe you've devised a narrative that distances you from ever feeling anything, like you're just tired of having your heart broken, so you're just going to be impervious to emotions and to any harm that people can cause you, because you've been hurt one too many times. Prayer can change that. Prayer can reset the narrative and help you tell a better story. Maybe you've, maybe you've decided that the world really is just an evil, awful place, and most everyone in it is out to get you in some way or another. No one can be trusted. Nothing is good. Everything's going to hell in a handbasket, and that's that. So I'm just going to put a frown on my face and go to work today and tell no one about Jesus and all of that. Prayer can reset that narrative and set your feet on level ground again and help you to see the story that Jesus has called you to live. It's a victorious thing that Jesus does in us whenever we pray. The first apostles who fell into persecution embody that victory, and, and prayer was the way that they got there.
Third and finally, the question is, what's the difference between a Christian who is bold and one who's just a bully? They prayed for boldness, right? Some of you probably have known Christians who you would describe as bold. Unfortunately, um, a lot of times we think of the boldest Christians in our lives, the ones that have been boldest, are often the ones that have been bullies. And uh, that couldn't be further from the truth as far as Scripture goes. The, the word that's um, translated as boldness here uh, is when they prayed for boldness is a Greek word that only is used like five or six times in the New Testament. And it's also translated as confidence. And in particular, it's used in a context that, that suggests it's confidence in what God has done and who God says we are and what God says is right and real about the world. And so when we think of bullies, bullies are self-confident, right? Or at least they, they want you to think they are. I've often found bullies to be the least confident people in the room, but they act like they're self-confident. It's an act, right? It's bravado. It's brash. Bold Christians are never brash. Bold Christians are rarely even loud. We don't need the world to know we're here because we're big and bad. That's not what boldness is in Christ. Boldness isn't self-confidence. Christian boldness is confidence in what God has done and who God is. That, that makes us impervious to anything the world throws at us. It makes us impossible to be victimized by this fallen world because our confidence doesn't lie and rest in us. Our confidence is all about God and who he is and what he's done. And he's, he's already accomplished our salvation. Our hearts are already his. There's nothing that can come between us and him. So what do we have to fear? Bold Christians are never brash. They're always humble. They're, they're not the people that stand out. They often um, work behind the scenes. They're not those who stand tall. They're often on their knees serving others or in prayer or both. Bold Christians are humble and patient and kind. Bold Christians are loving and gentle, even though they have all the power of God in their hearts. It's an amazing thing, really, when you think about it. There's a story of a Christian who faced unimaginable um, persecution, um, the likes of which, you know, is in the history books. Um, we think of Christian persecution, we think of stories like this. And he was, um, he was named the Archbishop of Constantinople, really high position in the early church at the end of the 5th century, or end of the 4th century, so 397 BC. His name was John Chrysostom. And John Chrysostom was a great and fiery preacher. He was known for his uh, rhetorical skills. He was a great speaker, and he spoke with boldness, not about himself, but only about the amazing grace of God in Jesus Christ. He, as great um, orators are prone to do. He upset um, the most powerful people. They did not like the way in which he was leading the church. And so a few years after he rose to that position of Archbishop of Constantinople, John Chrysostom was removed from that position, essentially defrocked by the Roman Empress. And the Roman Empress's name was Eudoxia. Uh, this happened around the year 405. I believe. And this empress threatened to banish John Chrysostom from his home, from his homeland, from his people, if he continued preaching even after he had been removed from that office. 
preaching in the way that he had, preaching about Jesus in such a passionate way. And John Chrysostom's response to her pressure and persecution is on record uh, to this day. In response to her threat to uh, banishment, he said to the empress, you cannot banish me. For the world, this world is my father's house. No matter where you send me, I'm home. That's what he's saying. It's a beautiful, powerful, bold response. And she, she retorted, but then I will kill you. To which John replied, no, you can't do that either, for my life is hidden with God in Christ. And then the empress said, then I will take away all your treasures. I'll confiscate your money and freeze your assets. And John Chrysostom said, no, you cannot do that either, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. There's nothing you can take from me that really matters. And so the most powerful woman alive at the time said, I will then drive you away from all your friends. I will ostracize you and you will have no one left. But John Chrysostom said, no, Empress, you cannot. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. This is how Christians respond when faced with pressure and persecution in this fallen world. So let me ask you a question. When you face such pressure and persecution, when you're tempted to accept the label of victim, the victimhood status this world would love for you to, uh, to submit to, where do you go? Do you fight? Do you flee? Or do you go to the church, the people of God? And if you go to the people of God, what do you do? Do you gossip? Do you just go through the motions of religion? Or do you pray together, praying fervently, praying about the mighty nature of God, about the truth of his scriptures, about the fulfillment of those scriptures in our midst, and about the only thing we really need from God, which is him, his boldness, his power in us. And finally, um, whenever, whenever you receive that boldness, how do you distinguish yourself from the bullies of this world that just need to be heard, the brash, the loud, the self-assured? You remember Jesus, who, of all of us, had a license to be brash <laughs> and to be arrogant, and yet he chose humility. He got on his knees and washed dirty feet. He got on the cross and washed our dirty souls. And he came to let the whole world know about God's love for us. This is the way, my friends. Whenever we face challenges, persecutions, and uphill climbs in this fallen world, this is the blueprint. This is the way forward. May we be people who gather together faithfully to encourage each other and most of all to pray. And in our prayers, may we seek Nothing more than the boldness of Christ in us. And when the Lord blesses us with boldness, may we receive it with humility because we were lost, broken. We were alone and destitute until Christ found us. Only by the amazing grace of Jesus Christ are we here, are we alive, and are we bold. It's in his name that we pray, and it's in his name that I offer this message to you. I thank all of you for joining me today. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this reminder today. Thank you for, again for this book of Acts. What a powerful reminder it is um, of who we're called to be as Christians. Um, this is not a, a game we're playing. Christianity is not a, 
a, a, a social movement. Um, the church is not a country club. We're not here to be casual and compartmentalized. Lord, we are here to be completely immersed in your Holy Spirit, overwhelmed by your love, made new by your grace, given a new identity, a new heart and soul, a new priority, Lord, um, for our lives. We're here to do nothing else but to make you known, to make sure the whole world around us knows the source of the hope we found, Lord, and the difference that you've made in our lives. We thank you for all that you're doing in our church, and we pray that you would continue um, to bless us and guide our steps as we embark on a brand new journey starting next week. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.